Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians as we continue our study in God's Word and Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and tonight uh, we're going to take the full chapter. That may surprise you after having spent so long on the first two chapters, but uh, tonight we want to see, rather than each paragraph, we want to see the whole big picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It is so rich, I hope one day to come back and take it paragraph by paragraph. It is uh, five paragraphs, a paragraph at the beginning, a paragraph at the end, and three paragraphs in the middle, that may seem obvious to say. The first is a kind of introduction. The last is a kind of conclusion with his exhortations and applications. And the middle three paragraphs are illustrative and examples and highlight what he's uh, trying to aim at. One main theme. How should a minister think of his people and his ministry to them? Especially when they're not what they ought to be. And nobody is. So let me invite you to consider God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hear now the word of God. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants... In Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, 
he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Amen. This is God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I need you tonight to help me, and we need you to give us ears to hear. I pray that you would show us glorious things about Jesus and your church and your ministry tonight from this word. Speak to us, teach us, correct us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3 continues the portion of Corinthians in which Paul is dealing with division in the church. You've heard this language before. Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. He'd begun speaking about that way back in chapter 1. He's continuing this argument, this correction to the Corinthians in light of this problem that they have, a problem of disunity. And he's applying the truth of the gospel to them. That's why I preach Christ crucified to you, he had said. Nobody else died for you. There is no other king for you. You're one in Jesus. Don't chase after men and ministers. You follow Jesus. And so we're back to that issue again here. That's the issue. And lest you think that that is an old Corinthian problem, not in the church today, would you consider the recent posting from Elevation Church in Atlanta, a multi-thousand member church which listed among its core principles of faith that we follow the visionary, meaning We, the congregation, followed the man who gave us the vision to plant this church. We follow the pastor is what they are led to say and to hold to as a core philosophy. Not Jesus, the minister, the man. That is exactly what Paul is saying we do not do and must not do. And it is always a danger in the Lord's church. Now, we don't put that in writing, but that is a temptation for you to think, even about me, and I think you're absurd to think that way. But it's possible. I've done it time and again. 
with men I respect in the ministry who preach the gospel to me. Now, Paul isn't saying, don't love the people, don't like them, don't be grateful to God for their gifts. He isn't saying any of that, of course. But it's, we have to be careful not to be cheerleaders for certain ministers in such a way that we divide the body of Jesus. It leads ministers, here's one of the dangers, to thinking of the people as their people. As subjects, therefore, to be ruled by that minister. Instead of as God's people to be served by that minister. And so in five paragraphs, Paul tells us how the people and the ministers ought to think of the church, how they ought to consider the work of the minister, how a minister ought to think of his people. And in the first paragraph, Paul humbles them. He says, you're like infants, verse 1. We'll come back to that. He humbles them. But he also says, beginning at verse 5 through 9, that paragraph, he says, but you are also... You're God's garden. And then beginning at verse 10, he turns to a different picture. And he says, you are God's building. And so I laid a foundation and we're building on Jesus. And then at verse 16, he changes the picture again. And he says, you are God's temple in which God lives. And then in the end, at verse 18 and following, he again, he concludes. But he concludes on a positive and not a negative. If verse 1 is meant to cut them off at the knees, you're acting like children. Verse uh, 22 and following is meant to build them up. He says, but I still think that what is true of you is true, that everything is yours in Jesus. You are a co-heir with Jesus. You possess everything in Christ. And so while he humbles them, he doesn't leave them despairing. He encourages them. So we want to walk through these five paragraphs together in our time together. This is, friends, how we ought to view Redeemer, how we ought to view ourselves, and how we ought to think of Christ's church and what God is doing among us. And let me say, before we consider those five paragraphs, one more word, that not only by way of context, but notice how throughout the passage he references the work of God the Father, the work of God the Son, and the work of God the Spirit on our behalf. It is God, he said, who had placed you into Christ Jesus. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. That was chapter 1, verse 30. 30. He's the source. Then he says, it's Jesus who gets you everything you need. Jesus is your righteousness. Here's how you're right with God. Jesus. Jesus is your sanctification. Here's how you're set apart for God. He's your redemption. He's your only hope of being freed from sin and misery and death and evil. Jesus is all your wisdom. He's the way to God. And then he's spoken of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. We looked at this last time. The Holy Spirit gave you the message. He gave you the revelation. He gave it to you in the words God wanted you to have it. He gave you the very Bible. And he gave you the help so that you can understand the revelation. He's spoken to us again and again of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And likewise here. You are God's garden. And then in the next paragraph, you are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then you are the temple of the Holy Spirit at verse 16. He's he's speaking again of the Trinitarian God who has done all this for you, who is all in for you, who has loved you and brought you to himself. 
And so now he turns his attention to how we should think of ourselves and ministers should think of the people of God. So let me highlight five things. The first is this, from paragraphs, paragraph 1, verses 1 to 4. Ministers need to recognize that the church can be and often is spiritually immature. Brothers, I could not dress you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Your babies in Christ, like little children fighting in the backyard. So some of you are saying, I follow Paul, punch. I follow Apollos, punch. And he's saying, you're acting worldly. You're acting like you're in the flesh. You're, you're acting like mere men is all this language. Because there's all this jealousy and quarreling among you. That's the evidence and proof that you are just babes in Jesus. Now, I want to say this. Don't be thrown off by the language of him saying, spiritual here. I could not speak to you as spiritual people. Because in the previous section, he said, you have the spirit of God. The natural man can't understand the things of the spirit of God, but the spiritual man can. And so the, don't think that Paul is now saying, now you Corinthians, you're actually not Christians. You're not spiritual. You don't have the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. And we know that for a variety of reasons. We know that because in the beginning, at, at verse 1, he says, I could not address you brothers, brothers and sisters. He's, he's identifying them with his family in the faith. And the end of that same verse says, you are infants in Christ. Okay? So he's not saying, you're not Christians. You're in Jesus. I believe that about you. And yet, he is saying, though you have the Holy Spirit, though you are in Jesus, you aren't living like you are. You aren't living like you have the Spirit. These people could not say, in a sense, I am not what I should be. I am not what I one day will be, but thank God I am not what I once was. Because Paul is saying, you sure are acting like what you once were. And so you're not ready for solid food. I, I, I gave you milk, he says, not meat. You couldn't handle meat. You had to drink from milk, and you ought to have grown up by now. And you ought to be able to handle meat, but you still need milk, he says, now, in Paul in saying that, isn't distinguishing two different kinds of messages. He isn't saying, you know, baby Christians need to hear about Jesus. And then there's this category of really spiritual Christians who are really grown up and mature. And they don't really need the message of Jesus. They need something else. And that's what we need to give them. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about one message for beginning Christians and another message for mature Christians. He's not talking about, you know, there's a lower kind of level of doctrine and then there's a higher level of kind of doctrine. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying if you'd grow up, I'd give you the good stuff. No, the good stuff is for all of us. Christ and him crucified. That's food for the soul. But Paul is distinguishing the manner in which we can take that food. Babies need it in a form that's like milk. Whereas when we grow up, we can, we can eat, take it in the form of meat. And so Paul is not saying that the Corinthians are behaving like second-class Christians or, some, or a kind of Christian, as some have thought he's saying, who, who are Christians in Christ, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. And what they now, they, they need a second blessing to get the Spirit. That is not what he's saying. But he is saying that, they're, that he believes they're Christians, but they're acting like they're not. And it's a contradiction. It's a fundamental denial of the good news of the gospel. And they need to repent and walk in line with the gospel. And so I simply want to say and reflect with you, 
This is a church Paul planted. He spent 18 months in Corinth telling these people the gospel that that he got from Jesus directly. And that's how infantile they are, and that is how messed up they are, and it is possible for the church to be that way. And that is not good, and it needs to be corrected, and we need to repent as Christians, but part of being a pastor is rebuking and correcting it when we see it. And that's the first thing Paul says. And the second is, I want you to understand that you are the garden of God, verses 5 through now, five through 9. And we should think of ourselves as plants in the garden of the Lord. What then is Apollos, verse 5? You, you guys keep saying you're following men. What, what is he? What am I, Paul says. What am I? I am a servant through whom you believed. I am a table waiter. That's, what he, that's the word he used. I, I, just, I just waited the table. I just brought you the food that the kitchen supplied. And I set it in front of you. I didn't cause you to eat it. I didn't make you get nourished by it. I didn't bring any growth to you. God did that. And, and his, his picture is agricultural. I planted. I went along in the soil and I scattered seed. Somebody else came along, Apollos, who came after Paul at Corinth. He came and he watered. But God gave the growth. That's what he's saying. There is, there is an enormous amount we don't know about how, how life works, how things grow, why cells divide, why mitochondria power the cell with energy they get from food we eat. I mean, why water and food is taken into the belly and your feet and hands grow larger as a kid. It's, it's in some way just a real mystery to everybody. And we know you eat and it works if your body functions properly. But Paul says, oh, you know, I couldn't make you grow. All I did was scatter seed. And without water, you would have shriveled and died, and Apollos put water on you. But it wasn't me, and it wasn't Apollos. God gave the growth. And so I want to say to us, we are, we, and we just have a tendency to think much too naturally instead of supernaturally about Christianity. We depend upon ourselves instead of God. We think we grow ourselves or our teachers grow us, or our preacher does. But we grow because of God, Paul says. As the psalmist put it, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. The question I want to ask here is, why is he saying this stuff? Why is he telling you this, that God caused the growth? He's doing it to remind you that where you have found a faithful ministry of the gospel doing good kingdom work, you still find that the man himself was ineffective and incapable of bringing about any spiritual good for anybody else. God gets all the glory because God did the work. Earlier we saw in chapter 1 that God is faithful to you. He called you into his kingdom. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And he keeps you, Paul had said in chapter 1. Now we see that growth is from him. 
So from beginning to end, it's all of God. It's because of God you're in Jesus. It's because of God you grow in Jesus. And it's because of God you're kept in Jesus. That's why you mature. And Paul can't take credit for it. And Apollos can't take credit for it. And mom and dad can't take credit for it. So here's the conclusion in that paragraph, verse 7. Ministers are nothing. They're nothing. By comparison to God. They are but instruments God himself uses. And God brings the truth. God brings the strength. God brings the success. And then he says, and ministers are one. They share the same work. They're fellow laborers together that in, a, in a garden that only God can grow. So now then he turns to another picture. It's the picture of the church as God's building, the people of God as the building of God in verses 10 through 15. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, verse 10, like a skilled master builder or like an architect, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each, each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he says the church is a construction project. We're being built on a foundation. The foundation is Jesus. And there are walls going up. And there are windows being put in. And there are floors being added to floors. And it's a massive structure as we all gather around and under and in Jesus. And Paul says... You know, it's possible with that building for it to grow and become like the leaning tower of Pisa. You know about this tower started in like the 1100s and it's like the third oldest building and they built it over a couple hundred years, but it was built and in such a way that even from the earliest days, it, be, it began to, to lean to the side. They, 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 in 1990s to 2000s, they had to, they had to shore it up to keep it from literally falling over. It's a usable edifice. It can be, uh, you can get in it, but in some ways it's deficient and it's imbalanced. And that is, that is possible and likely. And Paul is saying, that's what happened in Corinth. You had, you had Paul. You had Apollos, you had Peter, and you had, you had all these people in these camps. And, and what was being built was being built on Jesus, but it didn't look like what it ought to have looked like. Some had too much emphasis on certain good things and not enough emphasis on other good things. Or they said a great deal of true things, yet there was error in some of the things that they said, so that the building was not perfectly square on the foundation the way that it ought to have been. And Paul is saying this, that's because of the materials that were used. Some used good things. They used gold, silver, precious stones, the kinds of things that really last, that make a building attractive. Others used wood, hay, and straw, the kinds of things, he says, that are burned up when a fire comes and there is no lasting structure. And so he says there's a coming day, the day, the return of Jesus, when the work of a minister will be exposed like by fire. And some things will last and other things will not last. And so uh, we want to say this. Um, whether you are a pastor or a youth minister or a campus minister or a Sunday school teacher or a counselor or a parent, anyone who teaches God's word to anybody else in whatever capacity, we all need to be very careful to make sure that the things that we teach are in accordance with the foundation, Jesus Christ. 
And the truth that is passed on needs to be truth which is consistent with the gospel and which promotes and furthers the Lord. But not all who build the church build well. And just because something is done in Jesus' name is not a guarantee that it is something that is part of any ultimate worth. And just because something looks impressive to our eyes doesn't mean that in God's eyes it is impressive. And there is coming an evaluation one day with wages paid, he says, and wages lost by the one who did the work. The minister's ministry will be evaluated. And yet, he says, by way of encouragement, if anyone's work, verse 15, is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul is saying, there is reward for good work for God's way, done for, done for God's, in God's way, for God's glory. And yet there can be work that is burned up. Yet it does not mean that the man himself loses his salvation. And I know that's hard to reconcile in our minds. We're not going to explore that at length. How, on the one hand, salvation could be entirely of the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by his finished work for us. And yet there can be a wage paid for the labor we do on his behalf in obedience to his command. But there it is. God cares about our ministry and what we do. And not every effort is smiled on by him. And Paul wants you to remember in this paragraph that the man's work, deficient as it may be, does not necessarily mean the man is a heretic. To be sure, not all teaching is healthy, but not all teaching is heretical. Is there deficiency? Yes. Does God strike a straight blow with a crooked stick? Sure. Absolutely. But the man does not lose salvation here. Our salvation is not dependent upon our work. It's on the work of Christ. That's why he doesn't lose salvation. One of the primary places I think you see this whole issue of rewards played out is in Matthew chapter 6. Which you might turn there sometime and look at that. But I, I think it may be helpful to recognize by wage here, reward here. It may be that he is simply saying the joy of seeing and knowing that your effort for the Lord endured to the end. And was useful in furthering God's glory and kingdom. Simply the promotion of the loved one, Jesus is the highest reward for the one who loves Jesus. And if the glory of God is being promoted through those to whom a leader has ministered, then so much the better. But along the same lines, loss may be here simply this. The sorrow and sadness a minister would feel at seeing much of the ministry which he spent his life doing be exposed for the unhelpful and deficient and misguided work that it was. And seeing the impact of that on people's lives. That may be also what he's speaking of here. But there is in this paragraph a tenderness, I think, in the heart of the Apostle Paul. It's absolutely sobering, of course. But Paul is saying, now look. So I've exposed you as infants. I've exposed these, these camps as doing something really contrary to the gospel. But don't imagine that because this camp saw a deficiency, a real deficiency in that camp, that that camp isn't part of the true church. And we should reject them. No. 
we should be quick to embrace all the people of God and all its ministers who faithfully believe in the gospel. We should be graciously honest and truthful with them, absolutely, because their ministry may be misshaped. But if it's a genuine ministry, it's built on the foundation of Jesus. But then he turns to something even more more, um, terrifying at verses 16 and 17. He says the church is also another thing. It is not only the garden of God and the building of God. It is the temple of God. Do you not know that you are God's temple, he says, and that God's spirit dwells in you? So we're a temple. We have the spirit. We are the inner sanctuary of God himself. You and I together, all of us together in the body of Christ. And then he presses home his point. There is a kind of ministry, he says, that is no ministry at all. There is a kind of preaching and teaching and pastoring that claims to belong to Jesus, but is actually destructive of the people of God, destroys the church, if such a thing is possible. And the man who destroys the temple of God, he says, God himself will destroy. If we oppose the work of God, we are opposed by God, he says. The punishment fits the crime. He says, and by the way, we should add, because it is so often confused, Paul is not here giving you any reference to uh, people committing, Christians committing suicide. This verse has been used to justify uh, saying that suicide is the unpardonable sin. If you destroy the temple of God, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian, and you destroy your body, that therefore you cannot be forgiven. And I simply want to say, that's not what he's talking about here. The you here is you all, it's plural. Paul's not talking about individual believers here being the temple. He's talking about us as a corporate community. And the one who destroys is not a person who would commit suicide, though we should not do that. But the person who is destroying here is the person who's destroying the people of God through the ministry they're carrying on. That's what he's referencing here. So he says God protects his church. He takes up for his people and he destroys those who destroy his people. And so he says we will be evaluated and it was discovered that your ministry wasn't just misshapen, but it was literally off the foundation. You are in danger everlastingly. And so he uses all these pictures, and finally he comes to his conclusion in verses 18 through 23. Not only can the church be really messed up and be filled with infants, but yet it is God's garden, it is God's building, it is God's temple. But he says, therefore, on the one hand, let no one deceive himself, or don't deceive yourself, or don't keep on deceiving yourself. You should stop being deceived, he says. If any of you thinks you're wise in this age, you should become a fool. Be humble enough to learn is what he says. Nobody can teach somebody who thinks they already know everything. There's an old proverb that says, he who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. But he who knows not and knows that he knows not is a wise man. Teach him. The only way to become wise is to realize you are a fool. The only way to knowledge is to confess your own ignorance. As Charles Hodge puts it, we we must be empty in order to be filled. We must renounce our own righteousness in order to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We must renounce our own strength in order to be made strong by God. We must renounce our own wisdom in order to be truly wise. And so he says, stop being a fool and don't deceive yourself. 
That would have required an awful lot of humility on people to hear his words to them. Uh, Paul says, you abandon the wisdom of this world and the ways of thinking of people in this world. And you remember that the only thing that saves is Jesus and him crucified. And the only one who does that work is God doing the work. And you build a ministry on that, he says. And you remember that the good you have received from that kind of ministry should make you loyal, not to the man who brought you the message, but it should make you loyal to Jesus alone. Um, so, so then a second thing. So then in this closing remark, he does encourage his audience not to despair. They're to be re- rebuked, corrected. They've been called childish children. They've been told that they're arrogant and proud. But should they lose heart and give up? Absolutely not, he says. All you have is in Christ and you have everything in Christ, he says to them. You are this messed up. And all things are yours in Jesus. This is how good the gospel is. Notice the language. You are complete in Jesus. And no one boasts in man. For all things are yours. Verse 21. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. Uh, he, mentioned, he mentions uh, on the one hand these five things. The world, life, death, present and future. These five things. And as Don Carson tells us, they are representative of the fundamental human tyrannies that enslave us. Yet all of these things, he says, that might enslave us are shown to be under the hand of the sovereign God who broke the power of all these tyrannies in the broken body of his son on the cross who lays all these things before us now so that whether, as Paul puts in Romans 8, whether in life or in death, in the present or in the future, Uh, we may be confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because all these things belong to us. They're ours. They're God's gift to us, even life and death, because nothing can separate us from his love. Everything is ours in Jesus. But notice he says this, but so also is Paul. He is yours, and Apollos is yours, and Cephas is yours. They've all been fighting. One of them belongs to me. One of them belongs to you. And Paul says, <laughs> they all belong to you. You may not claim them, but they're all yours. And so he says to us to narrowly cut yourself off from other legitimate teachers by aligning yourself with only Paul or only Cephas or only Apollos would be like going to a great banquet with 600 different choices. And you could find yourself to a little section on the end of the table that consists only of the appetizers and not of the fruits and the vegetables and the meat and the dessert. What fools we are, Paul says. We all, all ministers, he says, all ministers of the true gospel belong to all Christians because we are all one. So that is freeing to know we aren't limited by one minister and to know that we have much to learn from the whole body of Christ and its messengers, and we should pay attention to that whole body. And it is thrilling, friends, that everything belongs to us, and we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. And so you are a co-heir with Jesus of all things. Use every good thing for his glory and for your good. Own it. 
Embrace it. It's yours, even if you're a child in his church, an infant, fleshly, merely human. Repent, believe, and embrace what he gives you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would correct us, change us where we are proud, and humble us because you oppose the proud but are gracious to the humble. I pray that you would help us to know the blessing of belonging to Jesus and that he would be exalted among us. We ask that you would prune us in your garden, that you would build us on Christ, that you would indwell us by your spirit, that we would be your temple for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.